0: Well, we come now to the point in our service where we uh, dwell on God's word, and here to read for us today is David Mason. Our reading today comes from Micah chapter six, verses six to eight. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. It's good to see, be seen, I guess. I can't see too many of you. But I am glad to be here with you this morning as we start a new series, a short vision series on the call of Christians to mercy and justice. I was with my mother this um, holiday season for a short time, and she quoted one of my relatives who had a very thoughtful thing to say, and that is this that there is too much religion and not enough God in the world. Too much religion and not enough God. I think that is prophetically true in this moment, um, both inside and outside of Christianity, but certainly inside. And I think here these words from the prophet Micah remind us of exactly this idea that true spirituality comes from the inside. It's from the heart. And Micah says two things here that we need to remember. Firstly, the priority Of inside out heart spirituality, and secondly, what it looks like, what some of the practices and parameters really are. And so let's look at those two as we begin our series on the call of the church to do justice and to love mercy. Here in verses six and seven, he says there's a priority on internal, real, true spirituality. He says. The problem that has plagued God's people for so long, and almost all religions, to be honest, since it seems forever, is this. Ritualistic external spirituality begins to be emphasized, begins to be what we define ourselves by. The spirituality centered upon religious rituals, outward observances, and behavior rather than true devotion to God from the heart begins to define us. And Micah says specifically, this should not be so. He uses rhetorical questions to ask and answer this question. He asks, what should we come to the true God with? Rivers of oil, offerings of great quantity, lots of bulls being sacrificed? No. These rhetorical questions are meant to be answered in the negative. God doesn't want that from you. Because these sacrifices, they have no inherent power to please God or to change you. They're not a barometer of true religion. They're meant to be outward expressions of what's really going on inside of you. God made that clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, he said stuff like this. This is what the Lord says to Samuel in First Samuel 16, verse 7. He said, do not look upon appearances or on the height of his, that is Saul, the first king of Israel, of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as we see. We look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has made a priority the priority of loving him from the heart. And Jesus repeated that. Jesus repeated by affirming one of the Jewish scribes who said this is the summary. That you should of all of the Old Testament you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. See, love him from the inside. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so church Christians people who are investigating Christianity, we need to wrestle with this. Rituals, church attendance, church events, even generous giving are not necessarily barometers of what's really going on inside of you. What's going on in your heart when no one's looking? What's going on in your heart when only God is there with you? That is true spirituality. If the skeptical world sees us as simply religiously observant, but not any different from anybody else. If we're not caring for the poor, the lost, the marginalized, not loving in a deep and distinctive way those who disagree with us politically, culturally, and socially, then the world has a right to call us hypocrites. And this is Micah's point. External, Sunday-only Christianity, as one of my mentors puts it. Ritual Christianity isn't what God's calling for. He wants our heart. He wants us heart-based, soul-animated, desire-driven, love for God, expressing itself in these outward areas. That's what He wants. He wants us. That's His priority. Will you give Him your heart? Will you give Him you from the inside out? That's the priority. Now, once you've made that your priority, what are some parameters? What are some practices that show that inner reality. And he says three things. Firstly, do justice. Secondly, love mercy. Thirdly, walk humbly. Let's look at those three in order. Do justice. The gospel calls upon Jesus' followers to do justice. Doing acts of justice are meant to be expressions of authentic faith in Jesus. They're, They're not an extra part of the gospel. They're an essential center of the gospel. You don't get to call yourself a believer in Jesus without being a doer of justice. We can't separate the two. But what, what, what is biblical justice? Well, that is a loaded question. And we'll have to sketch out some of these contours. I can't answer all of that. That would take hours. But let's start where we need to. And that is, too often, people in our culture both those who are Christian and those who are not assume that biblical justice is the same thing as what our culture defines as justice. Not so. Gospel justice is neither the present culturally conservative view of justice or the present culturally progressive view of justice. It's its own view. No, it's God's view. It reminds me of the time Joshua was scouting out the land of Of Canaan, which would eventually become the land of Israel. He had the Israelite community and army behind him, and he was looking for a way to invade, and he met a man on the road as he was scouting out Palestine, Canaan. And he looked at that man, and he went to him, and it says in Joshua chapter 5, he said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said to him, Neither but I am the commander of the Lord's army, and now I have come. God's not for either party. He's for himself. What does Joshua do? It says, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? That's the posture we should have when thinking about the parameters of biblical justice. What does the Lord say about it? And when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see some clear patterns and parameters coming out, some practices. Firstly, dignity. The Bible says that God made us in the image of God. Male and female, he made them in his image. We therefore have God's image in us. We have divine dignity. We are not like any other creature. In this way, we reflect the glory and the image of God. Uh, but not. what does that mean? That dignity means two things. Firstly, equality. Every human being made in the image of God, no matter how smart or not smart, no matter how wealthy or not wealthy, no matter how gifted, capable, whatever, is equal to everybody else. We are all equally made in God's image. Equality. Secondly, responsibility. Made in God's image, we have the moral responsibility for our actions. We can't blame others, ultimately, for our actions. They may have impacted us. We can't blame systems for our actions. We have moral responsibility. So dignity, which means equality, and responsibility. Secondly, when it comes to social interactions and government interactions, that personal dignity fleshes itself out in governmental, legislative, judicial, and cultural impartiality. Biblical justice is centered on the idea of treating everyone impartially, regardless of station in life, color of skin, profession, wealth, power. Impartiality. Not equality in in its purest form. Impartiality. If somebody steals you don't have to treat them equally with someone who doesn't steal. You treat them because they have responsibility and dignity. You dignify them and their responsibility by treating them impartially. That means the poor get treated the same as the wealthy. The privileged Uh, gets treated the same as the marginalized. In the courts, in the marketplaces, in the schools, in the streets, in the sanctuaries. Impartiality. Dignity. Leading to responsibility and equality. In how we view people. Impartiality in how we run society. However, The Bible clearly says selective partiality because of the curse and the fall. And what do I mean by that? I mean the gospel view of justice recognizes that as a result of the fall of human sin and brokenness that people will be oppressed. That systems of oppression will be created by the wealthy and the powerful to keep the poor in their place. And that there will be vicious cycles of poverty, marginalization, even addiction. That will happen. Therefore, Despite this general principle of impartiality, there is selective gospel justice of partiality for the poor and the marginalized. Leviticus nineteen is a great test case for this. It's, it's setting up the rules of what Israel should look like. Now listen to it. Firstly, Leviticus nineteen thirteen personal moral responsibility. Do not defraud a neighbor. Or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. You are personally responsible to act wisely, caringly, with integrity, personal responsibility because of the dignity that you've been given. But secondly, listen to the impartiality. Leviticus 19.15, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Dignity and responsibility. Impartiality. But then... In Leviticus 19.9, selective partiality. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the sojourners. Who are the poor? Just the economically disadvantaged. Who are sojourners? Aliens. People from another culture, from another race who are visiting the land, maybe living in the land. But they're not Israelites you see selective partiality pursuing the poor and the marginalized finally redistributive selective no redistributive partiality is also there in the year of jubilee regulations in the old testament every 50th year the original property of some family was supposed to be restored to them, even though because of economic circumstances and fluctuations, they may have had to sell it. It gets restored to them. Slaves get to go free. Debts get to be forgiven. There's a principle of redistributive justice, you might want to call it, to help the marginalized break cycles, to help the poor break grinding circles of poverty. And these things move into the New Testament as well. Personal responsibility. Jesus is calling you everywhere to personal responsibility. Love everyone. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. He extends Old Testament principles even more deeply. The Old Testament says do not commit adultery. Jesus says do not even lust after someone. Jesus calls us to absolute truth telling. Personal responsibility is elevated in the New Testament. But impartiality is also there in terms of how we treat each other, particularly in the church. James chapter 2, the brother of Jesus. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you would pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You hear that, no partiality. But selective partiality, Jesus says to the disciples, Luke chapter 12 Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, so sell your possessions and give to the needy. There it is. Some implications on this idea of doing justice. Firstly, you're personally responsible to live a life of justice, of integrity, of truth-telling, of not stealing or defrauding people of treating people with the courtesy and respect that they are owed as people made in the image of God. Secondly, you're called to help pursue justice in the city and in the church, to get involved in helping the poor and marginalized. Okay, we don't have maybe fields that we own and crops that we grow, so what does gleaning mean in in today's perspective? Well, what do we have more of than we need to feed ourselves? Money and time. How about we set aside money and set aside time to help the poor, the marginalized, the sojourners in our society? How can we advocate in our churches? How can we advocate in Grace Toronto for the poor and the marginalized? How can we advocate in the city that those who don't have a voice get a voice and those who need help get help, do justice? Secondly, Love mercy. Now in the verse here, it says love kindness. That's this particular translation. It's translating a hard-to-translate Greek word, chesed, which often means covenant loyalty, love loyalty. Um, It's hard to know how in context to translate it. But the Greek word used most often to translate this, and the, the Septuagint tells us this, the Greek word most often used is mercy. And I'm going to use that word, love mercy. Mercy Mercy is a quality of love and compassion that seeks to alleviate the misery created by a fallen and broken world. It's related to grace, but it's slightly distinguishable. Grace forgives sin. Misery alleviates the temporal consequences caused by sin and brokenness and fallenness. You can forgive the sin of someone who has defrauded you. And then you can look at the, the misery and the poverty and the addiction they're in and help them out of that. Grace forgives sin. Mercy alleviates those conditions. Love mercy, says the gospel. Now, you've got to take a moment now, because modern cultural conversations about mercy are a bit ambivalent because they don't like the word mercy, it seems to imply a superior status. I'm looking down upon you. I'm helping someone who's inferior to me. And I get the sentiment, but the sentiment presupposes something that the gospel denies. The sentiment presupposes that a full equality of people is in question. And therefore, you can't even use the word lest you give strength to that. The gospel says the equality of people is without question. Because they're made equally in the image of God. And therefore, you can use the word mercy and you can love mercy. Because equality is not endangered by the use. You see, the gospel starts with absolute divine dignity and absolute divine beauty and absolute divine worth of every human being. Therefore, absolute equality in the way we should treat each other. But the gospel is also relentlessly realistic. The gospel understands that life here under the sun in the brokenness and selfishness and cruelty of our world is often unfair. We do get into cycles of addiction and poverty and marginalization. We do create systemic rules and laws that help keep poor people in their place that help embed racism. We do. The gospel understands that. That's not just a modern idea. The gospel knows that people get oppressed. And so the God says here, there's always going to be poor, marginalized people, people facing injustice. Show mercy. Love mercy. Embrace with your whole heart the divine mandate to help others who are less blessed, less fortunate, less privileged than you may be. But don't do mercy just to look good. That's ritualistic external Christianity again. Love mercy from the heart. Love seeing people helping people. Love seeing people with resources connect to and help people with less resources. Love seeing families that are relatively healthy helping families that are more broken. Love, seeing people that are not lonely, helping people that are. This, this isn't being condescending. This is love in action. This is the heart expressing itself the way God expressed himself. And see, that's the key. We, we love mercy because we've experienced mercy. Now here I'm speaking specifically to the Christians, but this is where the gospel makes a significant difference. You see, the gospel says God had compassion on us in our misery, in our addiction to our own selfishness, in the foolish choices that we've made. He knows they're foolish. He holds us responsible for them. There is a guilt to our sin, but he sees our misery, and despite our sin, in compassion, he comes and forgives the sin and begins to alleviate the misery. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. I'll skip ahead to Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You hear that? Being rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God looked with grace upon your sin and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the guilt of that away. I'm going to put it upon my son. And his son agreed to do that. It says, He who knew no sin became sin for you and me, that we might become the righteousness of God. But God, in mercy, also looked at the misery and the selfishness that so confounds us, that, that we hate and yet we live by. And he said, I'm going to start taking that pollution out of them. I'm going to make you alive spiritually so you can fight your selfish inclinations, so you can fight the dark corruptions that tend to haunt every human heart. You see, that's what God's done for us. And the more you've allowed that to, to bleed into you, the more you allow that to soak into your heart and soul, the more you'll want to give that away. Implications. Let God's mercy soak into your heart to prepare you from the inside out to love mercy. And then secondly, look for ways to express that love. Look for ways where you, where you, where you work. Ask around, are, are people hurting? It's COVID, everyone's been hurting. Ask, ask if you can pray for them. See if you can meet a need, give a meal. Do something to help. Where you live, where you grab food, get to know the names of the people when you're doing pickup. Or hopefully when COVID ends, when you can actually walk in and sit down. Don't just be a consumer of coffee and food. Be a neighbor who gets to know them and prays for them and cares for them. I've been going to the same place for dry cleaning for years. And uh, yes, I don't iron my shirts this well. That's somebody else. And uh, as I began to talk to some of the staff, I recognized one of them asked me a question because they'd heard I'd been a former lawyer Um, as I was sharing my testimony once. And they said, hey, do you know any law firms? I'm I'm looking to become a lawyer myself. And so I was able to help them just call some lawyers. And one of them was kind enough to grant this person an interview and just helping people in their need by getting to know people. There's someone uh, in our church who uh, decided he was going to get involved with his condo. So he he, he got himself nominated for the board and he's on the condo board and he's helping with the practical needs right where he lives. My family were walking in the, in the middle of uh, of COVID. It was early evening and someone was trying to shove a massive, I think it was a, a mattress into a tiny car and it wouldn't fit. And so we just stopped and, you know, socially distanced, asked them what was going on. And it turned out they they needed to be evicted from the place by midnight and it was getting late and they they needed to get out, and so they, but they wouldn't fit in the car. And so we lived nearby, and so my wife and I looked at each other, and then we volunteered to drive the mattress behind their car to their new place or their temporary place because they might have to leave the country even. You know, open your eyes. Pray and ask for opportunities. Make it a priority to add mercy into your life. But understand that loving mercy doesn't mean looking down on people. It means embracing God's grace. All right. Finally, walk humbly. Immediately after he says love mercy, I find this fascinating, God, through the writer Micah, calls us to walk humbly with our God. Isn't that fascinating? Beautiful, I think. It is as if the writer under the inspiration of God's Spirit, knows where our hearts go, how fickle we are, how prone to pride we are, how prone to fear we are, how quick we are prone to be unwilling to reach out to people different from us, people we consider other than us. As I'm reading more about racism in North America, I'm realizing that one of the roots of racism, at least in the North American experience, is economic fear. Fear of losing your place socially and economically. That fear has historically driven a lot of anti immigration, immigrant sentiment, and racist legislation throughout our history, both here and in the United States. Another deep root is pride. We think ourselves better than others, and we we need to validate ourselves all the time. So we look for people. Who, who are in lesser socioeconomic circumstances, and we try and find inherent differences between us and them. And so racism creeps up. Classism creeps up. all the From pride. We start to try and validate ourselves by the, the schools we send the kids to, the clothes we wear, the houses and the subdivisions we live. So we put gates in and we create red lines in the way we understand property to make exclusive places to prop our pride up. You see, these are deep human roots. A few pieces of legislation will not cure fear and pride which are so deeply residing in the human heart. They will not be evicted easily. Because the gospel, I think, is the only way to deeply and truly evict fear and pride from the center of our motivational grid the gospel says to pride you have no place here because the gospel says before God all of your accomplishments all of your self-validating efforts are useless Isaiah 64 verse 6 we've all become like one who is unclean all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment we all fade like a leaf And our iniquities, that's moral wrong, our iniquities like the wind take us away. Pride has no place in the presence of a holy God. When you walk with God, you can only walk humbly. And the gospel says, pride has no place. But the gospel also says, you have no need of it anymore. You don't need that pride because everything you're using pride to do, to prop yourself up, to validate yourself, you have completed. If you believe in Jesus, I've given it to you as a gift. To be loved, to be accepted, to feel worthy, the gospel gives you that free of charge. Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. How much more beautiful can you get to be completely blameless of any wrong? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, what you do, that no one should boast. Pride has no place, and it has no need. All that you need has been given to you already. You see, you don't need pride anymore, and there's no place for it. By the way, same thing with fear. You don't need to fear anymore either, because of Jesus Nothing can separate you from this complete, approved, worthy, blameless, loved, adopted status that God gives you. What does Romans 8 say, verse 38? I am sure, says Paul, in this climactic verse of Romans 8, that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Men and women, boys and girls, fear and pride, they come to you and they say, you're empty. We will help fill you. The gospel comes to you and says, Jesus' gift of himself has made you full. You are perfect and complete. Stop trying to fill an already full tank. Rather, start pouring out from your fullness to others. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. A couple of quick applications. As I said, start by praying and looking where you live, where you work. Look and pray for opportunities to love and express love of mercy to others. Secondly, do justice. Think about advocating for the poor, the marginalized, the sojourners where you are, in your church and in your city. In the city, stop fearing the broken people of the city. Just start to get to know them. Learn their names. I remember walking outside of uh, 41 Britain, our old uh, church home, and met a guy there. He was on the streets, and he was just asking for money, and I had learned enough to just ask him his name, and his name was Daniel. Daniel used to be a truck driver, and um, uh, he smoked cannabis when he wasn't driving, just to while away the bored hours, but uh, he got caught on a drug test and lost his job as a truck driver. When he lost his job, his family walked out on him when he lost his job and lost his family and had all these payments to make, he got into deeper cycles of drug addiction because of the shame and the guilt and the brokenness. We, we built a relationship, and we were able to talk. We were able to try and help him. And he used to come and say, Hey, this is a safe place for me. You guys are a safe place for me. Out there, it's dangerous. Here, it's safe. And he'd cry, and he'd just sometimes stay in our office. When you get to know broken people, you'll realize they're just people whom life is broken. Enter into the places of need around you in the city. Advocate. But also in our church. Let's become change agents. You know, over the break, I read and all of the comments that had been made in the census. And one thing I realized, these, these comments are all uh, anonymous, so people were free to share. You know what I found? Fear and a bit of pride in that census. I, I noticed that it's evident in how we interact. Uh, a, a lot of people, and I'll just pick pick two for now, a lot of people who were Caucasian said this is one of the first churches that's not... Majority Caucasian, and I, I feel a little weird about that. See the fear there. A lot of people of Asian backgrounds, so this is the first time I've been to a non Asian church, and even though they're the majority, they don't feel like the majority because it's not an Asian church. A 58 year old white guy, a senior pastor, that would be me. And they feel unease. And so there's a fear that's driving, and what we're hearing. Time and time again in the censuses, people are getting in little clumps of comfort and not always breaking out. So when you're new, you feel like there's all these circles and you're just not part of any of them. I, I, I need to tell you that the leader of this church isn't white. I'm not the leader of this church. A dead and risen Jewish rabbi who proved himself to be God the Son, Jesus Christ is the leader of this church. The, pr- the predominant teachers that we get our doctrinal take and cues from were a Jewish fisherman named John and a Jewish ex-Pharisee named Paul. Uh, the, the prominent interpreters of those teachers that we have most relied upon are a North African named Augustine of Hippo and an exiled Frenchman named John Calvin. You see, the church of Jesus that we inhabit is a church of sojourners, of exiles, led by a crucified and risen Jewish rabbi. This church is filled with people nobody feels at home. It should be for everyone. Let's help make Toronto that kind of a church, a church for everyone, because none of us feels like home. I know some of you go, well, that's easy for you to say. But there are people who walk into our church who have a hermeneutic that their culture has given them that they don't belong I'm thinking in particular of people who experience homelessness, but also other people, 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 the black people, the black community has felt like aliens in their own country, in their own city. And so they walk into the church. They're wondering, will we be different? Let's make this a different place for them. Let's take our fear and our pride let's make our coffee times when we get back to them not places for personal catch-up or enhancing or networking but places of welcome of impartiality generally but selective partiality to those who feel marginalized because the culture has told them that let's do that for our people So when someone that you don't know out of your comfort zone comes into the door or into the coffee time or into your small group, how about looking fear and pride in the face and going, be gone, I evict you. I'm complete, I'm loved. And out of the depth of the fullness that I have in Jesus who gave me infinite mercy and infinite grace, I'm going to reach out to those who are new. To those who feel marginalized by our culture. To those who feel not yet home in this church. Can we do that here at Grace? Can we do that out there in the city? Yes, we can. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. I ask that you would do this work in our lives now. For your glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, we have a bunch of questions uh, as I expected. Um, excuse me while my. Wow. I'm not sure we're going to get to all of them. I'll throw a couple at us and then I'll answer the rest perfectly. Um, this is a great question. Uh, uh, is it your exe- example of regi- 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 more an example of mercy, for example, giving to the poor? Uh, Micah 6 10 to 13 is an example of what uh, he talks about adding qualifiers or she to the term justice and partiality muddy the actual distinction. Like I said, this is a first take, and, and, and this person is doing a good job of pressing into it. I really hesitated with this idea of redistributive justice in the, in the year of Jubilee, uh, except that. Um, in the year of Jubilee, in, in the legislation of it, it doesn't talk about mercy necessarily. It just talks about a general expectation of reality that we're just going to do these things. So it could be characterized either way. Um, so, But I do think that it is pretty clear that the sojourner and the poor people, the wit- in the Old Testament, the widows and the orphans in the New Testament church, there is a kind of Caring out of compassion for those whom life has made life more difficult And, and I'll stand behind that I do think that you, it is sometimes tough to exactly figure out where to put them all So that's a great question uh, The difference between grace and mercy um, As I said, te- technically in, in theological parlance Grace is, is often talking about the guilt of sin and consequences in terms of pollution of your soul and oftentimes, um, which leads to oftentimes misery in your life. So um, what I would say is mercy generally is focused. God has mercy upon us and out of our overall state of guilt and brokenness and corruption, he has mercy upon that miserable state we're in and he throws grace at us through Jesus. But he also throws grace at us to clean up the pollution, and he, he often throws mercy at us. He, he took the people of Israel who were in their slavery. He forgave their sin through the Passover and then got them out of slavery to Egypt in mercy. So there's a distinction there that can be held. Uh, oh my gosh, these questions are huge. How, can you say more about this? How do we as imperfect human beings rightly discern those who should receive selective Partiality. Our society cannot agree who is oppressed or how. How do we select who to be partial to? Fantastic question. Uh, again, that's getting into the nitty gritty. Uh, when I when I'm sketching out a partial thing here, we, we clearly need a, a lot of thought about that. But what I would say is, um, what's this, who society says are oppressed can change over time, and that could be because circumstances have changed, and I hope that is uh, oftentimes, but it can also be because just societal values have changed. So uh, the Bible doesn't specifically say it's only people who are marginalized. It's only alien sojourners, um, widows, orphans, all kinds of people fall into that list. And so uh, it's really hard at any given moment you can create a list of who, who should receive selective partiality and who shouldn't, but that list has to be open to changing. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, that's what I would say. So, which version of the Bible do you use? We usually preach from the ESV. Uh, and now I will finish and answer the other eight or nine questions uh, personally to you uh, by text in a few moments. But now we're just going to pray. Father, I thank you for this opening discussion about mercy and justice. As we go through this over the weeks, I pray that you would help us To think deeply about mercy and justice, but also not just to think and have arguments about mercy and justice, but to do something deep in our own hearts, and that is to commit to mercy and justice and not be afraid all the time of being wrong. There are some people that it might be questionable whether they're oppressed, but there are women in sexual slavery poor people experiencing homelessness people forgotten and alone long-term care facilities because their families have abandoned them there are many people that we can find very quickly that need your love your care and your mercy and i pray that we would move love because of the fullness of what we received in christ and it is in his precious name we pray amen